right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by IcarusFC.com. This is episode number 297. And with that number, we'll look back to 2015 when more than 297,000 fans watched the U.S. women play in games outside of the United States. That is the largest annual total for U.S. women away games in program history. Of course, a big chunk of that was due to the 2015 Women's World Cup in Canada. So two chats today. First one with my friend Rich Laverty, who's based in the UK. He just published a great article with our our game magazine talking about options for US players who want to head to the UK and Europe and and vice versa and how with a lot of the questions surrounding who's going to play when and who's going to play at all and national teams kind of on hold how a lot of that works for U.S. players trying to play in Europe. Uh, Of course, we also talked about rumors of who's going to be the new coach for England. And of course, after we recorded it, the FA went ahead and announced that Serena Wiegmann, the head coach of Netherlands that faced the U.S. in the final last summer, she is going to be the new coach of England following next summer's Olympics. So please take it with a grain of salt when you're listening (laughs) to our chat that we recorded that before that announcement was made. And then my other chat in this episode is with Coach G. Guerreri from Texas A&M. I got an update from G on, you know, what's happening with college soccer, specifically NCAA Division I and SEC. A lot of um, conferences have postponed fall soccer. SEC hasn't. Still a lot of question marks, a lot of unknowns, and a lot of frustration for for some of these coaches. And in between the two chats is the gensplaining segment. This week, I I talk about NWSL expansion drafts, kind of taking a look back at the rules for the two previous ones. Um, We know we're going to have one this fall. We haven't seen the official rules yet. I'm sure there's a lot to be determined. Um, So, of course, I'll have to revisit this topic. But I I thought since people are already talking about it, it'd be a good time to, to talk about it now. And don't forget on social media to follow me at MixZone, that's with two X's, and also at KeeperNets. All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper here with Rich Laverty from Our Game Magazine and other women's soccer outlets. Um, Rich, uh, love the article that you have out this week, kind of laying it out for all of us, all the details of if American players want to go over to Europe and specifically the FAWSL, like how it works. You know, like we don't always get to see those stories, but thank you. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, yeah, they, they take a little bit more putting together than they probably should do, but that's the women's game for you everything uh, it's not quite as readily available as it would be in the men's game I don't think yeah it's the same thing as I was foolishly making the assumption that since CBS had the men's champions league tv rights here in the U.S. that they would have the women's too and then no I did some serious googling and found out no UEFA has just recently decided to redo how they um sell those like up in up through this current women's champions league, like uh, up until the final, the home team got to sell the right. So it won't be till the next champions league tournament that it'll actually be like, you can like buy the tournament, that kind of thing. It's, it's like, okay, always, you know, women's has to be complicated, mm-hmm. hard to find the info, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. whatever. But uh, so tell me what, what led you to write that, that article? I mean, because I, I think it's so pertinent for NWSL fans because I think we are going to see a lot of players trying to get over to the UK and to, to play this fall. Yeah, I think it was pertinent for probably both sides of the Atlantic, which works for me as a, an English women's football writer predominantly working for an American outlet. So, um, yeah, obviously there's a lot of rumours at the moment, of course, of uh, NWSL players not just heading to England, but heading to Europe, but predominantly some do seem to be heading 
to England. Um, obviously, there's been some going to to Leon. Obviously, Ellie Carpenter moved to Leon, although I think that was probably happening, COVID or no COVID. Um, obviously, Jody Taylor's gone there on a, a short term deal, which probably is not a huge surprise given the American team that she plays for. Um, but yeah, it was just uh, it just felt very relevant at the moment. Obviously, Sam Mewis um, got confirmed uh, earlier in the week, and yeah, there's there's several more in the pipeline to come to England and probably even more that I don't know about. And and as I wrote, also the issue now that is coming to the fore with the NCAA season, which affects a lot of young players, but also a lot of English players that were at the end of their college careers and some very good young English players as well. So, um, yeah, I think at the moment it's, it's, um, it's a pretty fluid situation and I think there'll be a lot going on in the next few weeks in terms of NWSL players moving, whether it's to England or to to other European clubs. Now, has the transfer window been shifted or have they made allowances because of the various shutdowns or is it still following basically the same kind of summer transfer window that we've seen in the past? Yeah, it's still following the same kind of window. So it closes on September the 10th. So, which is just after the season will start. The season starts September the 5th, 6th. So I think it's about five weeks left, uh, four and a half weeks, something like that. So there's plenty of time. Uh, There's plenty of time. And obviously clubs have predominantly done most of their business, but I'm sure some have left, you know, a little bit in the budget um, for this eventuality because I think it was pretty obvious that this was going to happen, that once the Challenge Cup was over, that, players were going to start looking abroad um, for football. So I think the lucky few that, that are deemed good enough or that they're wanted to to be brought in by a European club um, will get their moves. But obviously, you know, I'm sure there's many, many more that want to move but simply won't, you know, get taken because budgets are tight. So, um, yeah, the transfer window is still open. Um, so we've got plenty of time, I think, for uh, for some movement still. I'm not sure about the dates in, like, France or Germany or Spain or whatever because obviously everything's very different at the moment and the situation's very different in each country. Um, but the English transfer window closes on September the 10th. And tell me, um, does it vary right now, country to country, what the work permit situation is, or are all EU countries kind of following the same thing? Because, you know, for some countries, it seems like it's pretty easy for an American to go over and, you know, get a gig with, you know, Iceland or Denmark, right? Um, But obviously, as your article talked about, like FAWSL, you know, if you're not a mainstay on your national team and you don't have a parent or grandparent that can get you that dual passport, you're, you know, not going to get a contract. So, I mean, can you explain a little bit how it varies country to country? Yeah. I'm not sure what the specific rules are in, um, in other European countries. As far as I'm aware, the 75% rule that I wrote about in the article for our game the other day is, England specific that is an FA rule and that is the same it's the same in the men's game as well it's a little bit more fluid in the men's game in that the percentage that you have to have played is a little bit less for the top ranked team so I think the teams that are ranked one to ten in the FIFA rankings I think you have to have played 30% of matches I think if it's 10 to 20 it's like 50% or something and then everybody else I think it's 75% from what I've from people I've spoken to in the women's game, it seems to be a blanket thing that is 75%, whether you're the US or, you know, Uzbekistan or something like that. It is 75% wherever you come from. So, like I said in the article, I use some examples, players like Christy Mewis, um, Calaprico, you know, Di Bernardo, players like yeah. that, that are in the US squad that don't really play, that are in and out. Players like that, as far as I'm aware, could not come to England. They probably could go to France or to Germany or to Spain. I don't know what their okay. rules are like. But I think in England, you can... Players have done it. You can appeal, and a club could pay 
for that work visa if they wanted to, but obviously that costs money and budgets are tight, you know, at the best of times in the women's game and obviously they're tight at the moment. So it can be done and that's why in the men's game it's not such an issue because the club can just pay the money to to get the working visa. Um, In the women's game it's not that simple, but yeah, I think it's straight. If you look back through the history of WSL transfers, you probably wouldn't find many players that fall outside of that work permit rule. And, and we were talking about some examples off air, of course, people like Brooke Hendricks and, you know, Daphne Corbuzz, when she came to, to Manchester City a few years ago, they have EU or UK heritage. Um, right. Ella Mastrantonio, who's just come to Bristol City, um, is Australian. She's not even capped for Australia, but she qualifies because, again, she has um, some family from either the EU or the UK. So if you've got family... Um, that are in the UK or from the UK or from Europe, you can get that permit and that's not an issue. But if you're not, um, then yeah, it's it's pretty much impossible to come and play in the WSL. Well, and I remember the, the 75% rule pretty clearly because it, I mean, at this point, it's probably almost a decade ago that Jeff Cameron was trying to leave the Houston Dynamo to go uh, play you know, in the Premier League. And that's because he had had some nagging injuries. He had been unable to like play in the last several U.S. national team matches. And, you know, so I remember reading about that and learning about that. And I guess I thought that it was something that was for the whole EU, but clear. So it's, it's nice to know, no, that's an FA regulation. Um, Mm. So, so each, each country might have its own, kind of way way of doing that because ideally just like NWSL right your your home league is to build your own players right yeah it is (laughs) I think um we we like seeing you know the big players come here as well you know obviously we're very excited about Sam Mewis coming here but you know that rule was put in to basically protect you know young English players and and there are many young English players you look at the England national team um you know, the top young players are playing in the WSL, which is great, apart from obviously the few that are over in America at the moment at college. You know, the top young players are playing in uh, the English league. The ones that have gone abroad are sort of the more established ones, the Lucy Bronzes, the Tony Duggins, the Alex Greenwoods, Nikita Paris, etc. Um, so it's obviously having a positive effect. And, you know, I'm sure it's frustrating for some players and I'm sure it's frustrating for the clubs. The clubs, I'm sure, would probably rather be able to sign whoever they want but um the rule is there and it doesn't sound like it's going to change so um, yeah that's just something that they have to deal with so the schedule came out was it last week for the, for the wsl i mean um were you or were there any fixtures that we were like oh that's going to be great or you know of course they can't really i mean what are their attendance situation right now with COVID? are they doing completely empty stadiums as well or do they hope to add fans at some point Mm, i mean they've talked about using the wsl and the women's championship as potential test events for fans because obviously attendances are usually relatively low anyway and the stadiums are not full um so social distancing would be much easier but at the moment i don't see that happening these first two games that have already been announced um at the start of september i don't see that happening the government seem pretty set on this October deadline where that will be when they start to open up stadiums again. Um, so hopefully it can be October because it would mean fans only miss a few games. Obviously we'd rather they miss none, but I'm a little bit surprised because I think, you know, people are allowed to go back to pubs and things like that, you know, in really enclosed spaces yet you can't go to a big football stadium, you know, that holds 10,000 people when there's usually only, you know, a thousand people in there max anyway, you know, pre COVID. So, yeah, it's a little bit strange, but obviously we can't take any risks. And, you know, the players and the staff, myself with, with Sheffield United, you know, I've been in the testing bubble. We've been getting tested twice a week for over a month now. And, and obviously you don't want to jeopardise that by allowing people into the stadium, obviously, that are not being tested and, and could be carrying because it just undoes all the, the hard work that, you know, I've seen up close with my own team but obviously every other team around the top two divisions that have done so well because we've had nearly 6,000 tests now between the two leagues and we've had one positive so I think that's been a huge achievement and it shows that everyone is taking the precautions and yeah I just don't think we can uh, we, we want fans back in as soon as possible obviously but we just can't take any risks I think uh, at this stage until the situation you know keeps getting better. 
And it was interesting to see that with Samantha Mewis signing for Manchester City, that it means that the the community shield will be Sam Kerr versus Samantha Mewis, you mm. know, like a, a repeat of the Universal Championship game. Um, but for my listeners who might not know what the community shield is, what, what's your like three sentence explanation of, of that game? Yeah, so the Community Shield is, is very simply, in the men's game, it has always been the Premier League winners play the FA Cup winners at the start of the next season. If the if that's the same team, then it's just the top two from the league um, would play each other. So obviously right now, Chelsea are the WSL champions. Manchester City are the FA Cup holders from last season because this season isn't actually finished yet. So um, yeah, those two play each other um and that hopefully now will happen at the start of every season um it did happen in the women's game until 2008 so this is the first one for 12 years so it's essentially the league winners versus the cup winners and i think it's a great way to start the season and it's a shame that it's starting when we can't have fans um, because it would have been a great season opener and like you said a lot of new players on show obviously in manchester city with sam mewish she might be a little bit rusty because she's in quarantine at the moment so i'm not sure how much training she'll get um, before that game, but yeah, of course, Sam Kerr and, and of course, Jesse Fleming as well for Chelsea um, coming over out of college. So there's going to be some uh, big, exciting new players on show in that game. And yeah, it's a great way to start the season and I'm all for it, to be honest. I think any any big games we can have, any showpiece occasions that we can add to the calendar, um, bring it on. Well, and speaking of the, the soccer calendar, it sounds like there are going to be some uh, England fixtures for the women this fall. Unlike in the U.S., it seems like uh, there won't be anything uh, before January. Yeah, whether there's fixtures or not, I'm not sure. We haven't really done anything with England. Obviously, we just haven't seen. I think the last camp was obviously She Believes. Um, right. So the contact we've had with Phil Neville and the FA has been quite limited, obviously, um, apart from the speculation around the job, but yeah, we just we just haven't heard anything about camps or games like we usually would because I don't think it's been top of the agenda. I think there is going to be a camp next month for England. I think Phil Neville has said that. Whether there are games, I'm not sure. Nothing's been confirmed yet. Anyway, um, I think we are quite fortunate that even if they don't want to take players abroad and, and take all the staff abroad, and I think that would be quite. Uh, a risky thing to do in the current climate. Um, We could obviously play, we could play Wales or we could play Scotland or we could play, you know, we could have a little home nations tournament instead of, you know, (laughs) England have said they're not going back to She Believes. So, um, you know, over the next few months, why not? You know, Wales are a a strong team. They've got some very, very good players. Um, Scotland are coming on absolute leaps and bounds and, and Northern Ireland are strong as well. So, you know, let's put those four teams together and, you know, obviously minimal travel if we do want to have some friendly games. And, uh, yeah, it would be great. But, yeah, I think there's going to be a camp. Um, whether there are games, I think usually we would have heard about it by now. If we don't hear in the next week or two, I would assume that it will just be a camp. But, um, yeah, we'll we'll wait and see on that. So when is it that Bill Neville officially leaves as head coach? And, and what do we know about who his successor could be? I don't think anyone knows when he's really going to leave at the moment. I think it, <laughs> it, it depends on the successor. And that is, I mean, look, the rumours are that they've narrowed it down to Jill Ellis and, and Serena Weigman. So uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, Jill Ellis could come into the job now. Uh, there's complications for the FA, whichever route they go. And if this is true, if these are the final two, and the FA obviously haven't confirmed that or anything, these are stories at the moment. But... You know, the FA are making cuts at the moment. They've been as affected, you know, by COVID as anybody else. So if they bring Jill Ellis in now, not only is she going to command probably the biggest wage of any women's team manager in the world, they also have to pay Phil Neville off as well because his contract expires in 2021 um, after the Tokyo Olympics. So they would have to pay off the final year of Phil Neville's contract and then put Jill Ellis on probably the biggest contract in women's football so it doesn't massively tally with with an association making cuts um the option with serena weigman is it sounds like she wants to see out her contract in holland which is also 2021 do the olympics and then there would be a a handover phil neville would step down after tokyo and serena would come in 
again, the financial issues around that is not so much not so much financially if you wait that year, but obviously I get the feeling the FA would like something confirmed probably more in advance rather than only giving Serena, you know, 10 months essentially to prepare for our home Euros. But, you know, again, if they want to do that now, they have to pay Phil Neville off and they also have to pay to get Serena out of her, her contract with, with KNVB. So it's complicated. Um, they're talking about they want to confirm in the next week or so, but I think the situation, unless the things are more advanced than we know publicly, um, I don't know where this is going to kind of end in the next week or two. So I think it's um, I think it's a wait and see at the moment um, and see how things develop over the next couple of weeks. And that's going to be a little strange, though. I mean, if um, if they announce, say they announce, you know, next week, okay, it's going to be Serena Vigman, you know, like, but Phil stays on for another several months. It's like, that just seems a little strange. But, I mean, do you have any memory of, of you know, England head coach, male or female, having that much kind of, I guess, you know, crossover? That's not the right word for it, but, you know. Yeah, no, it's just a strange situation, isn't it? Because obviously the whole schedule has shifted, but the contracts haven't sort of shifted with them. You know, Phil Neville's right. contract was was tailored to take in the World Cup, to take in Tokyo, and to take in the European Championships in 2021. And, you know, I feel a little bit sorry for him now in a way that he might not get either of those things. So it's a very difficult situation with all the contracts at the moment. Um, I think... At the moment, I think the more reasonable solution is probably if they can come to a pre-contract agreement with Serena and let Phil, you know, take the Olympics. At the end of the day, he's been with the team. He's been the one trying to develop them, bringing the young players through. Let him finish that off and then, you know, Serena can come in next year um, and she gets to see out her contract with, with the Dutch and the FA don't have to, you know, spend money paying Phil Neville's contract out and they don't have to spend money um, buying Serena out of her contract. And, and obviously she probably wouldn't command the wage that, that Jill Ellis would either. So um, yeah, I, I don't think we're, we're close to seeing the end of this yet, unless obviously there's a breakthrough in negotiations. And of course they could go back to someone else. They had 142 applicants. So if Jill wow. Ellis isn't workable and, and Serena isn't workable, then um then, you know, I'm sure there's 140 other people, you know, waiting for the phone call um, and probably many beyond that because Phil Neville wasn't one of the applicants last time. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think we just got to wait and see, really. Well, this, it, it's great, right, if it, it continues like this because we've had so little live soccer and we're still going to have not as much as we would normally have. So it's like, great, it's, you know, it's keeping us all entertained. But um Last question for you, um, because of course, um, I, I can't not ask your thoughts on on Rachel Daly and her performance in the Challenge Cup, because of course, she's English. Mm. So, just thought, thoughts on Rachel Daly kind of breaking through. I mean, for me, as someone who's been following her here in Houston for five years, it's so great to see her get this kind of national attention here that she's n- never really had, and and it's been satisfying too to see some of the coverage of the challenge cup from the uk yeah i think that's the biggest thing you just said there about us she's been there five years and she's always been a consistent player she's never really had that breakthrough moment and i think that is because obviously she's played so many positions and you know she does that with england as well but with the dash she hasn't always been that center forward and I think this tournament you know the game's in such quick succession you know she's such an athlete she's so fit and I think I think the stars just aligned for her um and I think even in America I always got the feeling she was quite popular anyway um you know she's a very laid-back figure she likes to have fun I think I think fans can relate to her whether you're from this side of the the Atlantic or the other so and like you know I got I got contacted by a newspaper in Houston last week to talk about Rach. And I think that that shows the interest in her back in Houston and back in America. And, you know, the one thing I said was, you know, she's just herself. She really is. And, you know, me and Rach are from the same, same area. We're both from Yorkshire. We're both from the North of England. Um, So I can relate to her quite a lot in terms of her attitude and and how she is and, and how laid back she is, but also how incredibly hard she works on the pitch. 
Um, and it was just nice to see her get a reward. You know, it's probably never happened for her where she's had that run of goals and the attention that came with it. And, you know, some players score the goals, but the team doesn't get the success. And I think obviously Houston winning the cup just magnetized uh, things a little bit more for Rach. And yeah, obviously she's another one that might come back short term. Um, obviously she more than qualifies because she's from the UK. So there's no work permit issues there. Um, or she could go to Europe. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of teams having a look at Rach Daly if she's available for the next few months. And, and Rach herself has talked openly that she might look uh, for a low move for the next few months. So it'd be great to see her back in England because it's actually been a long, long time. I don't think she's played, apart from obviously the national team, I don't think she's played in England for eight years now. So um, it's yeah, been a long time. Yeah, yeah, since before and, uh, she headed to St. John's. Yeah, it would be great to see her back. You know, Jess Fishlock, I mean, she's another one, hasn't played here for eight years, and, and she is coming back on loan. Um, so it's great. You know, it's worked out nicely for us. Obviously, not so great for the NWSL, and hopefully, you know, it's not too affected, and next season can uh, can start as normal, and, and those players can then return um, that have come on loan. But, um, yeah, I think to have Sam Mewis and, you know, Jess Fishlock, and, and if Rach decides to come back as well, then... Um, yeah, brilliant. You know, it'd be fantastic for our league. So, uh, but yeah, Rach is just great. You know, she's a genuine, a genuine person. You know, what you see is what you get. Um, and yeah, I think it shows that good people, you know, get their uh, get what they deserve in the end, even if they have to to wait a little while. Well, Rich, thank you so much for all your women's soccer coverage, and of course for taking the time today to 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 give me lots of key updates and uh hope hope the community shield game is good and and that the wsl season runs smoothly no problem thanks for having me on Time for a little Jen explaining this week's topic, NWSL expansion drafts. We know we're going to have one this fall as Racing Louisville will join the league starting with the 2021 season. So how do they get players? Well, the last few times we've had expansion drafts, which was January 2014 for Houston, and November 2015 for Orlando, who started in 2016. What the league did was allow each team to protect a certain number of players. And then the new team got to pick up to 10 players from those teams. And as you picked a player from a team, that team then got to protect another player. So how was done the last two times? And I'm not sure if it's gonna be done the same way for Louisville, but I think it would be pretty similar. The playoff teams from the previous season got to protect up to nine players and the teams that didn't make the playoffs got to protect 10 players. Um, with this season not really having playoffs yet, probably not, um, not sure how they're going to do that. So each club protects a certain number of players. They can protect no more than two USA allocated players. So that's going to be something that Chicago, Portland, North Carolina are going to have to think about. You know, which two do they protect and the ones that they don't protect? Do they trade so they get value for them or do they leave them exposed? A lot of questions like that. Um, the new team, Louisville, they'll be allowed to pick up to two players from any club. But if they take an allocated player, that's the only player they can take. So... Say Louisville takes one of North Carolina's allocations, um, then that could be the only player that they take for North Carolina. And keep in mind that with Samantha Mewis signing with Manchester City, but North Carolina retaining her rights, North Carolina would have to protect her rights as one of their protected players if they wanted to keep her rights moving forward. Um, so... Like I said, they can only pick up to two U.S. allocations. When a club has a player picked, then they're allowed to protect another player. And no club could lose more than two players, 
right? And the last two drafts, there were still uh, a fair amount of Canadian allocations. And of course, the first expansion draft with Houston, there were still Mexican allocations. So we don't have any Mexican allocations now. We still have some Canadian allocations. Not sure how those will be handled. Um, and I do know that um, you can or rather you need to protect any player whose contract has a no trade clause. So you could have international players, who knows, you know, getting Jonstadter, Marta, et cetera, who their contracts are, you know, I only play with my team. So they, those players would have to be part of your protected set of players. All this being said, we still don't know what the format will be. We still don't know when the draft will be. Um, you know, still waiting on a lot to play out. There's so much at play this fall. But if you want to take a look at the two previous expansion drafts, they're outlined pretty well on Wikipedia. Um, and I also have details of both of them in my Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac that's for sale at keepernotes.com. Of course, I will certainly come back to this issue. Uh, as we get more information, but I know that fans are already talking about this because, of course, there's not a lot, not a lot of NWSL games going on. So we'll just talk about what other NWSL news we have. That's it for this week's Gensplainer. If you ever have a suggestion for a topic for the Gensplainer, just email me at keeper at keepernotes.com. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Coach G. Guerreri from Texas A&M to talk all things college soccer, at least what we know of college soccer. So, so Coach, how, how's it been going this summer? It's probably, it's had to have been the weirdest summer you've ever had. It has been. Um, for me, this, when they, um, initially when, the kind of the shutdown began in March. We were in the middle of our of our spring training, our spring season, which is our typically our developmental time of the year, and that was cut short. And then ever since then, there's just been all this you know unknowns and doubt put put over other stuff. They put a dead period in um, the SEC created uh, a situation where we couldn't do uh, summer camps. So all of a sudden, for myself. It was the first time in, I think, 38 years that I haven't had summer camps and recruiting going on over the summer months. So I, I feel bad about the mental health of my wife having to deal with me for, uh, for that long a period of time. But uh, we survived so far. And uh, it, but it, it just continues. The, there's so much unknown and uh, you know, I, I really I feel like Charlie Brown running up to the football, and Lucy just never never stops taking it away. It's one after the next after the next. So it's it's been it's been it, it has really been rough, and I can tell you it's been rough on um, the mental health of of the college student athletes as well. It's the, the unknown for a lot of people who who are goal oriented and driven and plan. Boy, it's it's been tough. It's, it really has. I mean, all things considered, we're still college soccer people, so we live a great life. But there's been new challenges that we haven't had to really deal with in the past. Well, I think it's an important point you're making about you know being goal driven because we know that you know athletes are very goal driven and very competitive and and very good at focusing on results, focusing on a goal, focusing on a date, on a deadline. Um, and like you referenced with, you know, Lucy picking up the fall, the, the football that like, <laughs> you know, the deadlines keep moving, the decisions keep changing. Um, so, so where, where are things now for SEC soccer in terms of what the fall season is going to look like, uh, knowing that of course things can still change. Well, the, the cliche that has been overused, and I'll use it one more time, is just it's, it's fluid, that nothing is solid, that uh, honestly things change from day to day, from week to week. Um, and most of that, I'll, I'll say, is, is due to the really, really poor leadership of the NCAA um, and kind of the gutless um, 
personality of, of the NCAA that they um, they want people they want to say that we're going to give the conferences more autonomy to make choices, but no one can make a choice. And it's I, I don't think it's the conference's fault. I think it's it's clearly the, the lack of leadership at the top of the NCAA and across the NCAA. Um, you know, it's decision by committee, which is death by committee, in my opinion. So the SEC is trying to to be to be a good leader. Uh, Greg Sankey, who's our commissioner, is phenomenal, and is a uh, there's a reason why he's known as one of the most powerful people in, in college sports. He's very He's very articulate. He's very intelligent. Um, of course, he's a, a former youth soccer referee, so we give him a lot of credit for that too. But the SEC is trying is trying to not jump to conclusions before we have enough information to uh, that would make us have to change out of what we've been doing in the past. And um, obviously, a lot of what is driven in in college sports, especially the Power Five, but which you've got the SEC, the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big Twelve, and the Pac-12, but football is king. And you know, you go to a lot of schools in the in the conferences just below that, the Rice's of the world, or the SMU's, or the Tulsa's, and you know, you might get twenty thousand people at a at a football game, whereas you know, here we sell out one hundred and two thousand every every game, and so. Right. The, the amount of money that comes in that runs the entire operation, not just the football program, but runs the women's soccer program and runs the tennis program and the, and the golf programs and baseball and softball and everything. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot on the line and, and the model is based on the finances that come in through football because we don't here at Texas A&M, no public money is used and no student fees are used for the operation of, uh, of our budgets. Everything is self-generated. Um, stu- students can buy tickets, but they buy them at a greatly reduced rate. So even that isn't really a moneymaker. So everything for us is so much of it is driven on, on football. So because of that, so much has been put into trying to create a safe environment for all of our student athletes, male and female, um, with the focus right now being on on the fall sports that uh, soccer, volleyball, cross country, and and football are all, you know, doing a lot of testing. We're trying to keep our our student athletes in as much of a protective bubble as as can be uh, found in a college environment. You know, I think the NWSL was fantastic, and I mean it showed why women are smarter than us guys, but it showed how it can be done. And it's, it's hard to do that in a college environment because there's a lot of moving parts and, you know, and there's other parts of their life that they've got to, that have to take, have to be taken care of. But we're trying as much as we can to, to make our, our student athletes in very intentional about what can happen if they, come around people who could test positive and how they would go into, you know, air quotes, uh, COVID jail, which is a 14 day quarantine, which means you don't get to train. You don't get to play for 14 days and the ramifications that comes with that and anyone that is in contact with those people. So that's been a big fear. And, and, and honestly, it's been a great motivator because I, I can't tell you how I, I can't put into words how proud I am of, of my student athletes here because they have been they've been so disciplined and so good about looking after each other and and and, you know i don't think you would you would usually accuse a 20 a bunch of 20 year olds of thinking of other people before themselves but but our girls really are and uh they've been great so we get tested every week all the of the thousands of tests that texas a&m has done i know we've had no positives that have come from being in our uh, weight rooms or our practice facilities or our stadiums or anything to do with our athletic training rooms, anything like that. Every time that they're around each other, it's been safe as can be. The, the times that we worry about are when they're not with us, um, when they come in contact with 
without quote outsiders, which are friends or roommates or you know boyfriends, girlfriends, uh, parents, relatives. Those are all things that our our players are being really really careful about because they know a lot of stuff is out of their control. And as soon as they go into quote you know COVID jail, you know things get rough uh, as far as limitations on them. So so the the, the bottom line is. Our players are really safe. I mean, they're really safe, and they're really motivated because, as of right now, the SEC is planning on playing a season in the fall. Now, it's probably going to end up being an SEC uh, season where we only play other teams from the SEC again to, for safety issues. But uh-huh. um, that that motivation has been great as far as keeping our girls on the on the straight and narrow. And other conferences have have kind of punted um, and have said that. You know, this testing is really expensive, and they're worried about a lot of the intangibles that the, the what ifs and the what can happens. Instead of, I think what the SEC is doing a good job of is, this is what we control, and we're going to make sure that we do this the very best that we possibly can. And then we've got to educate all of our people and make them aware of what could happen around their surroundings. And then it and then it's their choice if they if they want to opt out. They can opt out, and their scholarship, uh, if they're on scholarship, is that we're not going to take that scholarship away because they're, they're they're wanting to opt out. But I can tell you, zero Texas A&M volleyball players, Texas A&M soccer players, cross country players, or football players have have opted to uh, to take that that opt out right now because they know they're in a, in a safe environment. Now, if they stop, if they were to say our season was canceled or pushed to the spring. Uh-huh. And now, now we don't have that discipline, that self-discipline of a game is coming up, and I don't want to miss it. Uh, I don't know what would happen. I, I think it would it would put them into a more dangerous uh, possibilities than where they are right now. And that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, like like I already said, these are goal oriented, focused oriented people. So when you've got that, hey, as long as you follow all these rules and do all these things right, you still get to play. And once that's once that's gone, right, then you've got, oh, I guess it doesn't matter if I go hang out with some friends or, you know, it doesn't matter if I, if I do this. Um, and when I look at the plans right now for the Power Five conference, I, I think it's the, the contrast is interesting that Pac-12 and Big Ten have just said fall season postponed. SEC and Big 12 um, look like, you know, no restrictions other than obviously, you know, you're doing all the medical things correctly and and ACC is looks like they're sticking in conference but might um you know they only want to play non-conference you know depending on uh medical standards it, it's an interesting mix from those top 5 right and of course it's it's five different sets of decision makers uh you know but do you think there's any discussion among those conferences or they just did their own things and and then what does this mean for uh, you know, NCAA College Cup. I mean, to me, it means like it's not happening this fall, but who knows? Well, you know, it, in the it, in the big picture of things right now, I, I I don't think the College Cup is that important this year. I mean, I just you know, I can't believe I'm saying that, but because that's, <laughs> you know, that that's always been that's always been our our goal is to to win right. the College Cup and get back into the College Cup again, and um, but I think in the in the bigger picture of things, for for the mental health of of my people and frankly for myself as well, in and for the safety of our players, um, I think competing for an SEC championship would be outstanding for this year to be able to play to to be able to keep people employed because of what sports does. Um, you know the. It, there's 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 hundreds of millions of dollars of reasons for playing you know big time college football, but that's even that's just within our budget our Texas A&M budget. I can tell you that the you know our economy here in Bryan College Station we're we're a very we're we're in this cool little safety um, uh, you know bubble of sorts that is run by a college a college environment and the that you have these constants coming in and coming out, but if you take out foot, uh, if you take out our football season, our seven home football games, that affects 
I mean, so many hotels, restaurants, um, supermarkets, uh, right. you know, go through all the services and all the things that go along that are tied to what that is, which of course is hotel and motel taxes and tourism, which then means that probably property taxes have to go up in town, which means that, you know, restaurants are going to close down that haven't closed down already. And I mean, it's, it it could be a a perilous situation for, for a lot of things. And so then you start to, I start to weigh, well, what's, you know, what, what's the, what's the, what's the benefit? What's the cost? You know, we, we talk about how in, in women's soccer, you know, ACL injuries happen and, um, you know, we do everything we can to balance the strength between our hamstrings and our, and our quadriceps and work on flexibility and balance and landing and all these things. But there's still that chance of the awkward landing or, you know, change of, change of, uh, of weight and it can twing and it goes, well, that, that, that's out there. And the CDC has studied this for more than 25 years, I know for sure. But they haven't said, well, because of this, you know, we should probably close down the game. It's just one of the one of the risks that goes along with it. And you you have to weigh the risks against the rewards of what playing a competitive sport does. And, um, you know, not that you're going to make millions of dollars playing it. But what is it that you are? What are you gaining from having this as part of your life? And I, I just. I, I get really angry at a lot of the fear mongering that's going on out there. And I know that this is a serious disease, especially for the elderly and the people with pre-existing conditions. Um, and that, you know, certain other things can happen that could also happen with other viruses and bacterial uh, issues. But gosh, um, I, 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 if you can't tell, I'm pro play. I can tell you, all 23 of my players are passionate about wanting to play. All of my staff are passionate about wanting to coach. Our fans want something to happen. Even if they can't come into the stadium, they want it to happen. They want some normalcy, quote, of the, of their lives to happen. And for super goal-oriented people like my young my young women who are in this in this program, it's it's something that's vitally important for their the way that they operate and the way that their psyche is. So, you know, I, I just, I think, I, I, I think if you have an opportunity to play, I think we should try to play. And of course, taking every safety precaution, which we are into it, instead of just looking at the glasses, you know, 20% empty and let's not do it. Uh, it that bothers me. So I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> but I, I can understand that as someone who, you know, for the last couple of years, the bulk of my work has been soccer related. And when the NWSL ter- um, season was taken off the table, I mean, April and May were really hard for me because there wasn't something to focus on. Right. Um, right. And, and, you know, and it, it's like, I think sometimes we underestimate the, uh, the mental side of health and that to take that away, um, you know, how it affects people, not just even the athletes we're talking about where it's like, that's their whole life, right? That's what they've been doing. And these are probably the people who are most likely to follow whatever guidelines you give them so they can play, right? Um, as we right. saw with the NWSL tournament in, in Utah, what, over 2,000 tests in six weeks and zero positives, you know? And then what you're talking about in AM, where it's like these are probably um the people really following the guidelines and in the safest possible situations unlike you know i, I think a lot of the hand wringing over should we really go back to sports it's like why don't we focus that on getting the people that aren't wearing masks to wear masks but that's that's a whole other <laughs> um d- 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 discussion but um but you're right I think but you're right that's because those are the people those are the people. Those are the people that are going to cause the problems. Are the are those yeah. careless people out there? Not the people who are taking care of things. That, that's, yeah, that's the thing that bothers me. Yeah, and and I and I hear your point about you know decisions by you know leadership by committee where or it's like yeah this is a perfect opportunity for 
the conferences to show strong leadership and more importantly for the NCAA to, to show strong leadership and not just go, okay, you can all decide for yourselves, which means then it's a mess of each conference doing its own thing. And, and of course, you know, we do have the issue of state to state, area to area, what, you know, your, your situation is, but it's just, um, I don't know, finding that balance between, sure, you can't predict how everything's going to be over the next several weeks, but you can at least say our goal is to do X and this is what we are doing to achieve X and we will keep reevaluating that as as we're going along. Like we've seen with, you know, the the new leadership at NWSL, like post-tournament, you know, Lisa Barrett has said, yes, we want to play more games this fall. We're looking into options. It won't be like the Challenge Cup. And yes, everything will follow medical procedures, but we're still figuring it out, right? So like, you know, you know, they're trying to make a plan, right? As opposed to, yeah, I feel like I've, I've heard very little NCAA wise other than, you know, I get the updates I get from, from Soccer America. So I saw the list this week of like, wow, here are all the conferences that have postponed uh, fall sports to the spring. And, you know, I, I can't even imagine how that looks, especially for those poor sports administrators. A big part of it is that, you know, this isn't the NFL. This isn't even MLS. Um, you know, when you're talking about college sports, you are not talking about apples and apples. I mean, if you talk about what Texas A&M is with 67,000 students and 150 right. million budget and you compare that to Houston Baptists who right. I have some great friends at Houston Baptist so I, or where I went to school University of Tulsa just a few thousand people it costs seventy five thousand dollars a year to go there to great education but we are talking about apples and watermelons they are way off and yeah. um, you know the different conferences are, are out there so you know if you've I think in so many times you can uh, you can follow the follow the dollars, right? Follow the money and see what's what's happening out there. And a lot of people will speak poorly about the Big Twelve and the SEC and the ACC. Oh well, they're only interested in the money. In this well, they are interested in the money because the money is what pays for the incredible support that these students get and what what they're able to do. Not just the Trevor Lawrence is the quarterback for Clemson, but you know, Cindy Lawrence, who is on the equestrian team at Auburn, or you pick, pick your, pick your place. It's, right. It's, it's what drives, it's what drives the engine. And so in the SEC, I, and I'd say at Texas A&M, we make a, we bring in a lot of revenue because of Aggie football and because of what Jimbo Fisher and his people do. And we are eternally grateful for what that is, but we need that to work. And right. so we want to try to find a way to make it as safe as possible for that to work. We get 102,000 people in Kyle Field for football games. Now, if you go around to a lot of other, the, the, the group of five schools, you'll go to stadiums that have a lot of people dressed as empty seats and they're, they're just not there. And those people, it's kind of, sometimes it's a degree of how much, how much are we going to lose on football this year? So yeah. Like, yeah. So you're talking like USA, Sunbelt, AAC, that kind of thing. Southland, whoever. um, Yeah. Ivy, you know, so if we play, we're going to lose X amount. If we don't play, we might not lose as much. So is it advantageous for those people not to play and actually not lose as much money? Whereas we're on the other side of the ledger saying we want to play because if we play and make it as safe as we can, then it's not just football that gets to play, but the golf team gets to play and the track team gets to run and the swimmers get to swim and the soccer players get to play that all of that goes along with it. So the financial model from school to school is vastly um, different and specific unto the environment that those people are in. And like I said, Bryan College Station is highly dependent on what Texas A&M does. UCLA is not that dependent on what's going on in LA as a direct comparison. LA is LA 
and right. it's going to that school is going to operate and the the people around that campus might be harmed a little bit but they're not going to be harmed to the degree that or that operations in Starkville Mississippi or Ames Iowa or Waco or, or a lot of these places that are so so dependent on what college sports and specifically college football does so so we want we want football to work but we also know that part of that is it seems like so much of this is optics and you know they're like well how can you have the men play and the women don't play it's like well I don't know. I mean, it's we're not doing things because that's a woman and that's a man. People, people are making the decisions based on what can be. I think what can be done. But the you know the the argument that we'll talk football for a minute. The argument okay. that well, football is such a is such a violent sport. Same thing with soccer. It's it's a contact sport. People are going to come in contact, and they're you know these they're going to they're going to be around each other in in close space. Well, everyone on the field has been tested many times and has come up negative. They've been traced to have neg- negativity or negative results. The referees, any support people, uh, everyone who's going to come in any kind of contact, whether it's just contact within 10 feet or actually touching players, they're all negative. They are all negative. So what are you going to catch? I mean, you could get injured is what you could get, but you're not the, the risks of getting this this disease that we have all tested negative for is even smaller than going to Lowe's and walking down the, the lumber aisle. I mean, you are right. you're in a protective state and that that is that is conveniently left out of a lot of the uh, talking heads um, worries and how this can happen and this can happen. I mean, like I said, we, our leadership is outstanding at here at Texas A&M. Ross Bjork is an is an amazing athletic director and leader. Greg Sankey at, at the at uh, the SEC is is the same way. Um, now it's not that way at every place, but we're lucky that we we have people like that around us. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, there's so many variables. Uh, you know, like. I feel like I have a good handle on it. And then I, I think about something else or like, you know, you, you're mentioning things like, wow, how do you just, you know, you can't decide for everyone that it's going to be a certain way, you know? And I think it's what even like, was it Ohio where they said no youth, no youth contact sports. And I think the youth soccer association is fighting to be reclassified as non-contact because they're like, no, we're not contact the way that football is contact, you know? Um, but I like your I'm point. Not sure, but I know, yeah. I know in Texas, in Texas, youth soccer is going on. We're we're playing soccer in in College Station, the club I'm associated with. The Cavalry are playing and training, and they've got games this weekend. And will there be safety measures and tests and all that? Absolutely. It's all they're going to do everything they can to make it safe. Travel baseball has been playing this summer, and you know the precautions are 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 being being looked at and you know you look at the around the country the reason I think the college cup won't be played this fall is because more than 50 percent of the conferences have said that they're going to push into the spring or they're going to try to push right. in the spring there's no guarantee right. that they're going to push in the spring um but that's that's their that's up to them and, and a lot of these are in states that are closed that are still not open to do things so we don't blame them for that but but don't don't make other people do things because you can't do something in Portland, um, Oregon. Let the people in Portland, Texas, do what they can do. And um, unfortunately, that, that's what I'm saying. It's a big country, and there's a there's a lot of different variables that are all based on where you are. And everyone wants to be as safe as possible. No one wants to take undue risks. And liability is, of course, a, a huge worry by by presidents and chancellors of, of universities. Well, and last question for you, Coach. And, and I, this is kind of open ended, but like, what you know, what can you as coach do and other administrators do to make sure that athletes kind of don't fall off the map? And and by that, I mean, you know, 
there there may be some players that don't get to play this fall because their programs have shut down. So, you know, do they get an extra year of eligibility? Or, you know, who knows what's going to happen with an end of result draft if you have half of the conferences playing in the spring and and of course there's kind of been a dead period of recruiting right so people may not keep playing soccer or might you know change their mind what they're going to do so it's like how do we not create a lost covid soccer generation out of this boy that's a good question i know i know my I know my 15-year-old has decided that the way he's going to save soccer around the world is he's going to invest more in FIFA and uh, in in his teams on in virtual soccer. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's I think what a lot idea. of people are doing. But uh, you know, that's that is that's the issue is that we have so many more questions than we have answers and. Uh, you know, unprecedented is used a lot, but gosh, we, I just don't, none of us in our lifetimes have had to go through a lot of these things. We're still so lucky. These are all, in my opinion, what we're going through are our, our first world problems that we're talking yeah, about youth yeah, sports. Yeah. Um, but I mean, but that's where we live. So how can we make it as good as possible? And I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm eternally optimistic that families are going to do what is good for their kids. And in the long run, uh, they understand that youth sports is good for the development of children in the United States. And it's good for the development of leaders uh, for the future and of good citizens and good friends and, uh, and competitive people who know how to win and know how to lose. So I, I, uh, we we could see some dips in numbers for different reasons, but but again, I, I remain totally op- optimistic about what soccer has specifically, and even more specifically, what soccer has for young women in the United States. It's just you know, we, I still don't think we've scratched the surface of of how great it can be, and and college soccer is probably the best example of that because this is the one part of the soccer continuum, you know, youth soccer, the women in the United States are tops. I mean, we're always going to be seen as one of the best producers of young talent in the world. At the high end, our women are, you know, how many stars on the jerseys now? And there's going to be more. Um, the NWSL has, has done a great job of creating things. The only pl- the only time when soccer takes a back seat to other stuff is in college. And a bit, and a bit of that is because it's still young and we don't have enough representation and, and uh, enough of a voice to, uh, to bring it forward. That's what I right. hope we can do going forward. But, but I, I'm, I'm still, I think that the future is, is incredibly bright. The light is, is so bright for what is going to happen to the sport. We, we can't, we can't lose track of that in, in a kind of a dark time right now of just trying to muddle through what happens today and hope that it's going to be better than, than uh, it was the day before. Well, coach, thanks so much for taking the time to talk uh, college soccer, youth soccer and, and, who knows what's going to happen this fall, but I, I hope uh, the Aggie soccer season goes along flawlessly. Thanks. And you know what? If it doesn't this fall, it'll it'll still be it'll still be great when it happens. And it's the same with with all the rest. So I hope folks out there will will go out and support their uh, their co- their local college programs. And and of course, those are the kids that are dreaming about being professionals, whether they're professional soccer players or doctors or lawyers or homemakers. So get out and support those those young women, and and uh, you'll you'll be you'll be pleasantly surprised at the kind of people that you're around. time to wrap it up with the back four first racing louisville fc has named christia holly as their head coach i will be chatting next week with louisville vp james o'connor about their coaching search uh, about all the groundwork that the club has done so far and what they'll be focusing on this fall as the first nwsl expansion club to have more than six months to prepare for their first game so look for that in next week's episode 
And of course, talking about NWSL, we do still have a possibility of more NWSL games this fall, plus an expansion draft. And there's also the question of what happens to the January college draft if half of the college teams aren't playing until the spring. So there's a lot to keep up with in the women's game, even without international play. So I highly recommend subscribing to Equalizer Soccer, The Athletic, and or The Nine newsletter. I'll put links to all of them in the post for this episode on bgn.fm. These three entities are devoted to thorough professional coverage of women's soccer in the United States, with also some coverage of Europe, Australia, FIFA events, etc. And they certainly deserve your support. And of course, I've been adding more videos bit by bit to my Woso Nostalgia YouTube account as I continue my never-ending quest to track down U.S. women's soccer history. So if you have any VHS tapes of old women's soccer matches, let me know. If you send me the tapes, I will convert them to DVD and digital for you. So email me at keeper at keepernotes.com for details. And last, as Liga Mex Femenile and WSL and Women's Champions League resume play, I know there are a lot of USA fans trying to figure out how they can watch those games. I'm trying to figure out the same thing, so look for keepernotes.com post early next week about how to watch those games online. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Want to give a big shout out to IcarusFC.com for supporting this podcast and all the podcasts on BGN FM. And as always, many thanks to my producer, Sean, for making this podcast possible. But now she's anybody's good.